Well, the question I begin with tonight is the same question that I asked, or a form of the same question that I asked as we began this study eight weeks ago. How do you typically respond when you experience difficulties, trials, and suffering? Or when evil seems to get the last word in your life or in the life of someone you know? Or when the pressure and stress of life hits the fan? Or when someone treats you unfairly and unjustly or takes advantage of you? When you receive medical or financial or relational bad news? What's your first reaction? What do you do immediately in that moment? Does your faith take a hit? Does doubt overwhelm you? Do worries and fear overtake you? Or who's, who's the person you call or uh, the people you reach out to first? And who are the first to respond when they hear of the circumstances that you're in? And when the initial shock wears off, what's your path moving forward? What choices do you make? Do you settle in for the long haul? Or are you tempted to throw in the towel, spiritually speaking? You know, there's an unfortunate trend today in which professing Christians, uh, when faced with these uh, difficulties, uh, there's a trend for them to choose, or at least consider choosing, uh, the path of what's called uh, deconstruction. Um, Deconstruction is defined by writer Alyssa Childers, as the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs you grew up with. She goes on to say, sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to into atheism. Some remain there, but others experience reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew and rarely retains vestiges of actual Christianity at all. And these professing believers are flocking literally by the thousands to the internet to find sites and follow certain accounts and to read certain blogs that are, again, in the words of Ms. Childers, dedicated to providing a space for professing Christians to examine, reinterpret, and even abandon their beliefs rather than encouraging them to look to the Scriptures as the authority of truth. And she elaborates by saying, deconstruction is not about getting your theology right. Deconstructionists do not regard Scripture as being the final authority for morality and theology. They appeal primarily to science, culture, psychology, sociology, and history. And if I could add to that, or I would suggest that really uh, they appeal primarily to themselves. 
For deconstructionists, they themselves are the authority. So, what they're doing is they're going out online and finding safe spaces where they can process the experiences and their feelings, all the while dismantling those beliefs that they grew up holding on to and encouraging one another in that space to view Scripture through the lens of their experiences rather than viewing their experiences through the lens of Scripture. And it's causing great harm. And it's not going to surprise you to hear me say that James has a completely different approach regarding how to handle the difficulties and suffering that we experience, the trials, the evil that that we undergo, the, the pressure and stress of life, those times when we're treated unfairly and unjustly or we receive that bad news. James, unlike these others, James says that we need to persevere, pray, and preserve those who fall away. That's the outline. Tonight we're going to hear as we wrap up this, these final verses of this wonderful letter, James is going to say we need, he's going to call us to persevere, he's going to call us to pray, and then he's going to call us to preserve one another. Your outline's in its usual place, and children, your words are, in fact, in their normal place as well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Grant us the ability, as always, to appraise and apprehend the truth found there. Awaken our attention and open our sorrows and convict us and challenge us and then refresh us, encourage us, and comfort us through the gospel. I'm unfit as always for this task which you've called me and I'm in need of your assistance by your spirit and by your grace. So would you grant both to me that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Help me to communicate well. Do with me as you see fit in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's look first at the call to persevere. Look down at verse 7. James says, be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The word patience has been defined this way, self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. And then a little later down in verse 11, we see the word steadfastness, and it has been defined as the temper which does not easily succumb under suffering. Uh, They sound very, very similar, but James intends to make a distinction between the two. Uh, Douglas Moo points out that patience is a long-suffering attitude we are to adopt toward other people. And steadfastness is the strong, determinate fortitude with which we need to face difficult circumstances. Patient with others and to remain steadfast and endure in the midst of our difficult situations and circumstances. And we're to do that by looking beyond what's present, beyond what's in the moment to that which is yet to come. And of course, that which is yet to come, James points out, is the return of Christ. The problem is we don't know when that's going to be. 
James does say it's at hand, but that simply means that it's the next event that's going to take place in redemptive history. And when he speaks of it being imminent, or when we hear of it being imminent, it means it could happen at any time. But we don't know when it's going to happen. But the good news is, even though we don't know when it's going to happen, we do know that when he returns, he is going to make all things new and make all things right. He's going to set it all straight. He's coming both as Lord and judge. And he's coming to consummate his kingdom and to save his people who are citizens of that kingdom. And he is going to right all wrongs, rightly and equitably, as he judges his and our enemies. And we should be sure in that. We should rest assured in that. It should always be in the forefront of our minds. And whatever difficulties and whatever suffering and whatever evil, whatever opposition and oppression and persecution and disease and illness and sadness or grief that we may experience, all of it one day is going to come to an end. It will be no more. And though these trials and tribulations are inevitable, though suffering and evil are, are, are here and now, there can and there also should be this triumphant expectancy within us that it will all one day cease. We will be rescued, we will be healed and defended and vindicated, and in some cases avenged, and our heavenly reward will be great. And the illustration in verse 7 that James provides is perfect, of course. A farmer can plant seeds, but he's got to wait for the rain to come before the crops can yield and be harvested. And there's a, a long time between those rains. There's, there's rain, he says, those rains that come first or early or coming in the fall prior to uh, or just after things have been planted seeds have been planted, and then the next rains are to come in the spring prior to harvest. So you've got the early and the late, and and his point is very clear that no matter how long the wait, no matter how long we have to wait for Him to return and set all things right, the Lord is and will be faithful. It will happen. And so in verse 8, James says, establish your hearts on that fact. Be set firmly in that, no matter what your circumstances may be. Remain resolute. Don't give up. Don't give in. Rest in what you know, not what you feel, and not in the world's wisdom. And then in verse 10, he says, look, what, what we need to do is follow, follow the example of the prophets, And he doesn't name prophets, but we can think of prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah who were willing to undergo whatever trials necessary and the persecution that they experienced in order to fulfill the call that God had placed upon their lives. We can describe them and others in Paul's words. You know, they they, they had remained steadfast and were immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because they knew the work was not in vain. And it wasn't in vain regardless of whether their message was accepted or not, or regardless of of how people responded to them or how they treated them. And then in verse 11, he says, look, not just the prophets, but think about Job. 
Follow the example of Job. He was blessed by God. He was rewarded in the end for his perseverance and his endurance in the midst of all the trials that he went through. He didn't listen to his wife's wife's wisdom of, of giving up and cursing God and dying. He was a picture of compassion, God's compassion and mercy. And how that compassion and mercy was extended to him. He's a perfect example of the fact that what we're experiencing now is temporary and is not the end and is redeemable. And our, our endings, her ending is not just going to be happy, our ending is going to be glorious. Because we've been promised that there will be no more evil, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sorrow, and He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. But James doesn't just lay out what we should do as we patiently endure. He also lays out a couple things that we shouldn't do or that we should refrain from. In other words, if we're patiently enduring in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our tribulations, there are things that we're not going to do. And to no surprise, uh, the two that he mentions involve the tongue. And if you've been with us through the last seven weeks, you know that that's been the theme. And it makes sense because when difficulties, when, when when we are in the midst of difficulties, pressure builds up within us. And the easiest, the easiest point and the weakest point for that pressure to be released is through the tongue that no human can tame. And in verse 9, he says, the first thing we should refrain from is grumbling against one another. In the midst of the difficulties that we experience day in and day out, it's easy for us to take out our anger and frustration upon someone next to us. And sometimes it's, it's even possible, or many times it's possible for us to take the fear and anxiety that we're dealing with and venting and, and that coming out as anger and frustration toward those around us. And James says this shouldn't be. The grumbling or the groaning and the complaining both to and against one another in our homes and in our churches reveals our lack of patience and endurance in the midst of our trials while we wait for Christ's return. But he goes even a step farther in this example and he says not only does it it show that we're not enduring, but actually as we do this, we're setting ourselves up for potential judgment. He says, the imminent return of the Lord should cause us to assess and to consider and to evaluate the things that we say and how we treat others and speak to others because what comes out, right, reveals what's within. What we say reveals our hearts. And therefore, our grumbling and complaining against our brothers and sisters could expose us for those who possess or profess faith but not possess it. So in the end, our grumbling and complaining to and against one another simply reveals a lack of faith. 
And again, therefore, he says that that shouldn't be. And then in verse 12, he says the second thing we should refrain from is not swearing. And he's not talking about using four-letter words. He's talking about making oaths or vows. And it seems a little out of place. Okay, if you've read ahead, it seems out of place. Some, and, and you read the experts, and, and, and they're like, not really sure if it goes with what comes after, not really sure if it comes with what was said before, uh, we're not really sure if it stands alone, and I get that. But having wrestled with it this week, I, I think it includes, it could include a couple of things. I, th- I think it's well-placed, and I think it could include a couple of things. First, I think he, he could be, he He could be telling us to refrain from seeking to make deals with the Lord in order to get out of our tough circumstances and trials that we're experiencing. You you may have been there. You may have heard others say it, right? Lord, if you'll just get me out of this situation, if you'll just deliver me from this trial, if these difficulties will just end, I promise I will fill in the blank. Or we've said something like, if you'll just heal my husband, or if you'll just heal my wife, if you'll just heal my child, I promise I will fill in the blank. Possibly. I think also it's, it's possible that he is also telling us not to speak rashly. Remember what Thomas said in John chapter 10? Right? I'm ready to die with you, Jesus. Was he really? Or what about Peter pre-arrest when he said, if I must die with you, I still won't deny you. And then post-arrest when he denied him three times. You see, patient endurance is not manifested through empty promises. Patient endurance is not manifested through impressive and even pretentious commitments. Patient endurance is manifested as we guard our words, as we speak quietly, as we speak thoughtfully and truthfully, when we let our yes be yes and our no be no. And we consistently follow through as people of our word and the word. Patient endurance is manifested in a faith that is quiet and simple, but genuinely confident in Christ and His word. And brothers and sisters, let me say that, and you know this as well as I do, this isn't news to you. But Satan will push us to complain and to grumble against one another and to promote ourselves and to put ourselves on display by speaking rashly and making promises we won't keep in order to watch us fail and to disrupt the unity within the church. And the world and its wisdom, again, you know this as well as I do, the world is going to take advantage of our emotionally vulnerable states, and they're going to lure us away and take us captive by vain philosophies and empty deceit and shallow promises, 
And please hear me when I say don't give up. Don't give in. Don't give in to any of it. Don't lose hope. Be patient with one another. Endure your circumstances. And may the words of the hymn writer David Whittle be true of all of us. He wrote, I know not what of good or ill may be reserved for me. Of weary ways or golden days before His face I see. And I know not when my Lord may come at noon or, or at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll, if I'll walk the veil with Him or meet Him in the air. But I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that He is able to keep that which I've committed into, until against that day. Well, James knows that simply establishing our hearts while important is not the end all. In other words, left to ourselves, our patience and our endurance will wane. Right? Whose doesn't? So he follows the call to persevere with a call to pray. Look at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James begins the call with a call to individual prayer. If we're suffering, which includes the various trials that we experience and the tribulations that we go through, James says we should acknowledge our frailty. We should acknowledge our need. We should acknowledge our dependence. We should acknowledge where our hope lies and pray. But then interestingly, he also says if we're cheerful, we're to sing a psalm of praise. It's literally what that means, sing, a, sing praise, sing a psalm of praise. And that doesn't mean when our lives are easy and there is no trouble, we're to, uh, we're to sing. It's when we're in the midst of those difficulties and we find ourselves and our hearts are encouraged and we're joyful, we're to sing. And what he's communicating and suggesting is that our tendency, whether, uh, whether we're discouraged or encouraged, sad or happy, uh, anxious or worry-free, whether our circumstances are difficult or easy, it's our tendency to ignore the Lord, right? When things are difficult, right, we get angry and, and we begin to rebel and we turn our backs on the Lord. We forsake the Lord and His Word. But then when things are going well, what do we do? It's, it's just the opposite. It leads to complacency and it leads to self-sufficiency and self-satisfaction, and we forget that the Lord is the giver of all good gifts. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, James says, no matter what your day consists of, no matter if it's got ups or downs, it's always it always provides an opportunity to pray, to praise, or do both. And either one 
whether we're praying or praising, they both, they both acknowledge His presence, they acknowledge His power, His sovereignty, His providential care, His sufficiency, and His compassion and mercy. Praise and prayer acknowledge that He is sufficient to meet our needs and He is the source of our joy. Alex Motier puts it this way. He says, the Christian life is to be an exercise in practiced consecration, to hallow every pleasure and sanctify each pain. Our whole life, we might say, should be so angled toward God that whatever strikes upon us, whether sorrow or joy, should be deflected upwards at once into His presence. In particular, this is an exercise in glad acceptance of the will of God. This is the common denominator of prayer and praise. In praise, we say to Him, your will is good, perfect, and acceptable. This is what you have done for me, and I rejoice. And as for prayer in time of trouble, it attempts, however poorly we may succeed, to copy the Gethsemane prayer of Jesus, saying, not my will, but yours. In the voice of prayer and the voice of praise are at one, for alike they say that the will of God is good. Prayer, brothers and sisters, prayer and praise should be continually on our lips, regardless of our circumstances. They're both something that we are to persevere in. And notice, that's why James started with perseverance and then went to prayer right? We're to persevere in all things, and that includes prayer. But there are times when our prayers, individual prayers, need to be supplemented, right? They, 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 we need help. Um, there are times when the pressure is just too much for us to bear up under on our own. There are times when we are just too weak we may be overwhelmed physically. We may be overwhelmed emotionally and spiritually, and we may be struggling with our patience and endurance. It happens. And James gives us one example. Right? This is an example of what could be many, but one example beginning in verse 13. He says, is anyone, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. Now we need to understand he's not talking about um, the cold or the flu. Uh, he's talking about, and his example is referring to an illness that has caused such physical weakness and distress, again, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Um, it, it's significant enough that it's left this person unable to leave his home or her home or to get out of bed or to leave the hospital, um, or it, it's just depleted them of all their, of any strength, of any capacity, that they need to summon someone to come. And those that are summoned are the elders of the church. Notice, James assumes that Christians are all a part of assemblies or gatherings in which elders or a plurality of men have been appointed to spiritually care for them. And physical illness is a spiritual matter. We get sick due to sin. Now, we don't get sick um, due to specific sins we've committed. 
though that is possible, it can happen, but not all sins or not all illnesses are due to specific sins, but yet all illness is due to sin in general, right? Illness entered in to mankind at the fall due to Adam's disobedience. So it is a spiritual matter. So the elders are summoned, and they come bearing oil. And the oil is a symbol of consecration. It's used uh, as a tangible sign that assures the one being prayed for that they have been set apart by God for His redemptive purposes in general and in the big picture, but also in that particular moment. It's a sign letting him know, letting her know that special attention is being given and care is being given to them at that moment. It reminds them, it reminds us that we are the Lord's. An illness and the illness we have is in some way being used by Him and is tied to His providential purpose in our life, in our family's life, and in the life of the church. But the oil is secondary. People want to make a big deal out of the oil, but the oil is secondary to the prayer or prayers that are being offered. And the prayers that are being offered are prayers of faith. And a prayer of faith, beloved, is not a mantra that makes a demand of God that reflects an erroneous belief that we've been promised health. It's a lie from the pit of hell. A prayer of faith is a prayer of humility. A prayer of faith is a prayer that acknowledges and trusts in God's ability to heal any and all illnesses as the great physician, and is a prayer that fervently asks Him to do so. A prayer of faith recognizes the mysterious nature of God's providential purposes and therefore asks that those purposes be accomplished through the illness in our lives. A prayer of faith is a a prayer that fervently asks the Father for what we believe is needed and then confidently Trusting that He can and will give us what He knows we need. A prayer of faith is a prayer that's fervently, that fervently asks for healing and then asks for His will to be done. A prayer of faith, James says, will bring healing if it is His will to do so. And before we move on, we need to take a minute to make sure we understand the last part of verse 15. James says, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And we need to remember a couple of things. Um, First, as I mentioned just a minute ago, we we need to remember that while all illness, um, generally speaking, is a result of sin, not all illnesses are a result of specific sins, but some are. Okay, that's why James says, if, okay? Uh, But secondly, we need to remember that in in the moments of debilitating, if you've been around it, 
in moments of debilitating and chronic and terminal and even unknown illnesses, particularly those that are ongoing, maybe without answers or the treatment doesn't seem to be working, in those cases when it's, it may be leading to death or probably is leading to death, it's very common for people to begin examining their lives, particularly spiritually. If you haven't been around it, take my word for it. It's very common. They begin to assess and look back and wonder and ask those spiritual questions. So in either case, it's very important for the elders as they come to always remind those they're praying for that if they are in Christ, their sins will be forgiven if they repent regardless of the course of the illness. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that your elders practice this type of prayer. We have um, since, we've, um, since we've planted and we will continue to do so. If you're ill and you call us, we will come bearing oil, ready to pray in faith. And if we know you're ill and you don't call, we're going to call you and ask that we can come. And we will pray with you. We desire to fulfill our vows that we have made, and that is one of the ways in which we can do that. So if that's not your past experience, please know that that is the, what you will experience here, okay? Um, all right, so James has said we need to be involved in individual prayer. He says we need, to be, uh, we need to call the elders to pray. And then he moves on. Thirdly, he says that it's something that we should all be doing for one another. So everybody gets in on this. Nobody's left out. Look at verse 16. He says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has greater power, or great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Prayer is not relegated to the elders alone. You're not left alone to pray for yourself. Right? It's something we all should be doing. No one's prayers are more powerful than anyone else's prayers. And that's because we've all been united to Christ. Right? We are we have all been, we, we are all righteous because we have been imputed with the righteousness of Christ. It's an alien righteousness. It's not our own, but we are that righteous person who prays. And more, more so, we're, we're all praying to the same God whose power is at work in and through our prayers. The prayer works because God is working. And it's natural for us to think, well, you know, I, I don't know that I'm really a person to be praying for anybody else. You know, you need to go call some so-and-so because they're, they're at this deeper level spiritually than I am. And that's why example, the, he, James includes, includes the example in verses 17 and 18 about Elijah. Because notice, he says, look, Elijah is just a guy. Elijah's a man just like, like you and I. He's a human being just like us. And so our prayers are as effectual as His prayers or as anyone's prayers because we're praying, again, to the same God who hears and answers prayer. 
And that being said, we need to kind of clarify both what is James encouraging us to pray for, what's the context that's, uh, that we have going on here. And he says, because there are, there are secret sins um, that, have, that we commit against God. And while uh, they can be confessed to others, you know, to one or two others for the sake of accountability as we seek to mortify those sins, they don't always have to be. Right? They can be, they don't have to be. However, they should always be confessed to the Father. And then there are also sins that have been committed against groups and congregations. And those sins should be confessed publicly in the group or congregation. But there are also sins that have been committed privately against God and individuals. And those sins should be confessed to God and to those individuals who have been sinned against. And that's for the sake of the individual who's been sinned against, that's for the sake of the individual who has sinned, and that's for the sake of the church as a whole, and of course, for the sake of Christ. And it's this last group that James was referring to. Throughout the letter, James has been addressing problems with the tongue, right? Right? And in each case, he's addressed it in terms of problems and disunity that it causes within the fellowship of the church, the unity of the church. Just as physical illness ravages our bodies, right, our tongues ravage the spiritual body. And as we call elders to pray for the physical needs within the body, the the, the illnesses within the body, those who sin against others through their grumbling and complaining, to stay in context here, but really any sin of the tongue against someone else, they're to go to that individual and pull them aside and confess and repent. Then they're to pray together for one another. And James says, when we do that, there's healing. There's healing among individuals. There's healing within the relationship, and there's healing within the body. James is encouraging penitent hearts. James is is encouraging restoration and reconciliation. James is encouraging prayer. Listen once again to Alex Motier. Where spirits have been bruised, or where either has inflicted on the other a blow which has resulted in spiritual decline, then in answer to prayer, God will grant restoration to spiritual health. Corporate prayer expresses this determination not only to come together after separation, but to undo the damage to the individual and fellowship. So let me ask, is there anyone you need to grab on your way out tonight? Anyone you need to grab and repent of your sin that you've committed against them and pray with them and for them so that the relationship might be restored and that unity might continue to be present here? And that brings us to the last call, the call to preserve one another. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if any, anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering 
will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Doesn't get any straightforward than that. Really doesn't need any explanation. James says our fellowship should be such that when someone withdraws or begins to isolate, that we not only recognize that isolation, right, which is a, which is a sure sign that they're wandering away from the truth and into sin, that we need to not only realize that they're wandering, but we need to go get them. And our message when we go after them is a very simple message. The message is no one is out of God's reach. There is no sin so great that it can't be forgiven. Christ's blood covers a multitude of sins, yours and mine. And James flat out just says, when we do this, when we're willing to go, each time we will save their soul from death. Beloved, how can we not when the consequences are so dire? The application overall is pretty easy as well when we think about this passage. Are any of you suffering? Pray. Are any of you cheerful? Sing a psalm of praise or sing the doxology. Is anyone sick? Call the elders. Have any of you sinned against a brother or sister? Go to them, confess, pray together. Are you tempted to wander away? Don't. And if you do, we're coming. And has someone you already know wandered from the truth? Go get them. Bring them back. And the next time someone asks you the question, what's so important about church membership? Grab your Bible, turn to James 5, and walk them through these last 14 verses. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love? Lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Bless those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. And it's in Christ's name I pray, amen.